I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together, we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today, we are celebrating Orca Month by answering your Orca questions. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. It's Orca Awareness Month! Yay! We are here with a special mailbag episode, answering questions that were sent in by you, so thank you very much for sending these in. Yay! We're so excited to dive into the questions, but first, disclaimers. Um, (laughs) As usual, you've probably heard this disclaimer before, if you are a frequent listener, most of our answers will be based on what has been learned primarily about the southern and northern resident communities, as well as the bigs population of orcas here off of our coast in the Pacific Northwest, because those are the populations that not just we three know the most about, but the world Mm -hmm. knows the most about. Um, And because we three are located in the Pacific Northwest in Canada, our searches and research are biased by Western science and English speaking websites that we can access and books and things like that. So just wanted to get that out there. And also because especially anytime we talk about the Southern residents, but also just science, um, we're recording this on June 10th. And it is entirely possible and has happened to us before that a discovery will be announced tomorrow that could change everything that we say because science. So just keep in mind that if we get something wrong, we did our best and likely something happened after we recorded. Yes. Sometimes we try and pop in with exciting breaking news, but that's not always possible. So... Anyway, on with the show. Uh, So our first question is, how many orchid populations are there and what is the most dense population from Georgeom on Instagram? So this question is very tricky because population structures and counts still aren't widely well understood for all the ecotypes of killer whales in the world. There are 10 ecotypes and at least 12 populations um, Alaska, Northern, and Southern Southern residents are distinct, but classified as the same ecotype. So if you ever get confused, especially with people in Alaska talking about residents, it's not the same, especially with Southern residents. It's just, we all decided to name the things the same thing <laughs> in the 70s. And then, then later they were like, oh no. So... <laughs> It gets extra. It was like when people in like Iceland start talking about residents, you're like, oh no, no, I don't know. Because they meet it just in the like (laughs) generic term of like these whales live here. Exactly. And then I'm I'm like, but your resident is literally eating a turtle, not in Iceland, but somewhere else. And I'm like, I'm so confused. Anyway. Um, so the likely area with the most orcas is Antarctica, but that's a huge, huge geographic range. So in terms of more most populated. Densely populated, it's central to northern BC. Um, We know that 349 bigs, killer whales, reliably travel through British Columbia as of 2019. So that's a little more, a little less, depending on um, the births and deaths in the last two years. And there are, as of 2019 as well, there are 310 northern residents of British Columbia's residents. (laughs) So that would be a pretty dense population for that area, definitely. And they're frequently not, they're never seen together, mm-hmm. but they are seen like in the same geographic. Like, oh, today 
up here yeah. is a Biggs, and mm-hmm. today, tomorrow up here is a North. Yeah, so, or in the yeah. same boat trip, just in a different part of yeah. the water. They overlap geographically, but not yes. temporally. Correct. Correct. So yeah, you've got about, in terms of like your population density, mm-hmm. you've got, you know, over 600, basically 650 mm-hmm. different individual killer whales that could be found in central northern BC. Yeah. yeah. I think that's probably pretty dense. Yeah. Who knows? Probably, yeah. If anybody knows differently, let us know. Yeah. <laughs> It's just this, like, untapped, Secret population. Secret population. It's like thousands of workers. You heard it here first. No, that's not true. This probably doesn't exist. No lies. Uh, Let's move on to another question. This question comes to us from Faithfully Salish Photography, and their question is, what are the best ways to learn individual orcas? Awesome question. There are obvious distinctions in terms of you know individual orcas can be identified by their dorsal fin and the saddle patch behind it as well as in some cases although much less reliable to see from the water their eye patches so the white patch behind their eye on either side of their body um and this is all of these kinds of things as well as any just other really distinct marks like if they've been in a ship accident or had an interaction with a shark or another kind of predator or anything like that any kind of scarring that makes it really really distinct are the ways that scientists as well as naturalists start to tell these animals apart but learning those can be really hard (laughs) and uh, we sort of think of it as like a, a fingerprint so you know the the dorsal fin and saddle patch together of an individual orca anywhere in the world is as unique as a human fingerprint but i don't know about you i can't <laughs> tell my family apart by their fingerprints nope i use other things to tell them if i don't even know what my husband's fingerprints look like now that i'm saying this out loud like i have no idea <laughs> Never, ever paid attention. Um, And so with the animals, especially that naturalists and researchers see most often, unless it's something really distinct, like a really distinct scar, sometimes it's just about understanding family dynamics and who Mm. is most frequently seen with who. So, you know, if you're thinking of J-Pod, there are a couple of individuals in J-Pod that are really distinctly, visibly identifiable and if you see them because you know the family dynamics of j-pod you know that usually like most of j-pod travels together you can start to make assumptions and Mm -hmm. assumptions that are based on on pretty accurate information and this you start to learn just by exposure and experience so you know first year naturalists or or uh what do we call beginning researchers like grad students there we go (laughs) It's been way too long since I've been in school. <laughs> First year research grad students, students. <laughs> um, it's not expected for them to be able to identify every orca they see out on the water, um, especially not without a guidebook. And even with a guidebook, mm. it would be really, really hard because, you know, you might need like ex- perfect weather conditions or for an animal to really cooperate and show you the right side of their body because that's the only picture you have of their dorsal fin. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so exposure and experience is the very best way to learn to identify individual orcas and clearly if you are privileged enough to be in a position to be able to go out on the water and have direct exposure and experience to the population that you want to learn about power to you fantastic that's amazing um but for most of us even those of us on the coast whose jobs it used to be to do this there are a lot of other ways that you can kind of like start to build your exposure um 
you can watch. There are so many videos out there now, uh, especially about the populations in the Pacific Northwest. Pictures, stories on websites like ours. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Where, especially if you know the population you're trying to learn about and then can just kind of like zero in on pictures and videos and stories about them, you'll train your eye a lot faster than if you're just looking at the internet search of orcas <laughs> that I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend. Um, we're going to include in our show notes specifically for two of the best studied populations here on the Pacific Northwest coast, freely accessible, complete photo ID catalogs of both the bigs. So this would be those 349 reliably seen in BC bigs that Lindsay mentioned in her last question. This is as of 2019. So again, it's it's not up to date in 2021. Um, but this is published by Fisheries and Oceans Canada. It is completely freely accessible and it is updated every few years. So there'll probably be a new catalog coming in the next year or two. Um, and it's a really it is the best place to start in terms of learning to identify bigs because not only does this catalog include both sides of their dorsal fin and saddle patches, it also is the only catalog freely accessible online that includes their eye patches. And it includes both sides of their eye patches for almost every single one of those 349 whales, which is insane. Yes. Really, really awesome. So we'll have that in our show notes. We also have very similarly also published by Fisheries and Oceans Canada, a complete catalog of the northern residents. This is also as of 2019. Um, And so that's another 300 animals you can get to know really well. It only has dorsal fins. But again, even that is really impressive. Mm -hmm. For southern residents, unfortunately, there is no freely accessible catalog on these animals. I will say clearly the Southern residents are the best studied, best sort of like publicized group of killer whales anywhere in the world. So you can do a lot of your own digging online and find pictures of every single one of the 75 Southern residents. But if you want a catalog that kind of breaks them down into family groups, the way that the catalogs of the bigs of the Northern residents do, you can purchase one of those from the Center for Whale Research. I believe they update it every single year. But unfortunately, you cannot get one for free. Um, You can also search our website by species and uh, ecotype and also name both uh, the number and also their nicknames if you wanted to look at stories about an individual and also photos. We try every photo that has been identified for us has a uh, caption with the who's in it. So I would definitely recommend, you know, narrow your what you're trying to expose yourself to not like honestly even if you are just like i want to learn about the southern residents i want to be able to identify them pick a family Mm -hmm. first and foremost just like really really narrow it down and then like i said you know find the most visibly distinct animal in that family get really really good at identifying that one animal and then at least you'll know the family you're looking at and then you Mm -hmm. can kind of expand yourself out from there that's awesome Okay, on the subject of identification, how do you, well, it's how do they identify um, babies after they are born? And this comes to us from Fame51210. Uh, Okay, great question. And in terms of how they get their name and their number, Nicole wrote an 
awesome blog post on our naming of series for this month. We'll link that in the show notes and it explains how resident killer whales get their, all their names. Um, for other populations, there's other sim, other systems of naming the juveniles when they are born. Um, but in terms I did do one of, about bigs last year. Right. So there's a bigs yeah. one and how the bigs get their names and their nicknames yeah. as well. So, but usually, usually their names are in some way linking them to, their family if known depending on the population um so the in general but then how do you figure out who's the mother and also whether it's a boy or a girl um so the mother's usually pretty easy to tell in the first year because even though they're all together with their whole match line um and the calf can be spotted really close to other whales as well the mother is the most physically close to the animal on a regular basis. So you might like make a wrong guess once if you base it on one observation, but overall it's the mother that's with them all the time. And also sometimes you can even observe nursing, Hmm. which is cool. Uh, Telling whether a calf is male or female is just luck and timing and getting a glimpse at their ventral side with good enough lighting conditions. And sometimes it can take years and years. And for like Mm -hmm. some calves, we still like they're like four or five and they still don't know. Yeah. A lot of, (laughs) A lot of the bigs, especially, yeah. even some of the older ones, we just don't know because we don't see them enough. Yeah. And we don't and see them. And same with some of the northern residents. Mm-hmm. They're like adult northern residents that just... Eh, they were just yeah. haven't, haven't <laughs> caught a glimpse of, of their ventral side. Until that dorsal fin gets real big. Yeah. It's anybody's guess. <laughs> and then telling who the father is uh, visually is impossible. Like there's no social relationship with the father distinct from any other... Um, individual like there's no special social relationship that we know of but uh we have been able to do dna tests in some populations so then we know the mother we have dna samples of some males and then we take a dna sample of the calf and can if we have the father or if they have the you know if the researchers have the father uh father's dna on record then they can confirm the father which is pretty cool Mm -hmm. i think that's how i found out that ruffles j1 was the father of like most of the southern residents. <laughs> so many. Speaking of breeding, uh, Dorothy asks, do orcas breed with other whales to make hybrids as some other whale species do? The answer to that is no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the end. The end. Um, if you've been listening to us for a while, you know that we have a special feeling in our hearts about killer whales being designated as one species uh, and different ecotypes. So technically that they can breed with each other and, or any, you know, <laughs> I don't think they're one species. So technically they can breed within each other, but it wouldn't really be a hybrid. Um, but it's not up to me to decide, unfortunately, until we take over <laughs> the international whale decision-making committee. Pretty sure that's what it's called. And <laughs> change all of this. Um, so as this, um, one of the reasons for this um, intense feeling that we have in the wild, ego types do not breed with each other. Uh, even residents, Southern and Northern residents, they very rarely even interact, let alone breed mm-hmm. uh, with each other. DNA research shows us that in BC, the residents and the bigs likely haven't mated for about 10,000 years. So why aren't they different species? Oh, God. Um, These two ecotypes diverge from each other on the evolutionary spectrum, 
700 to 750,000 years ago. Oh my god, we have to go to the International Whaling Decision-Making Committee right now. I'm so mad. Um, but if you want to learn more about residents and bigs mating and genetics, you can read Dr. Lance Barrett-Leonard's entire dissertation, Population Structure and Mating Patterns of Killer Whales, as revealed by DNA Analysis. Uh, we will link it in the show notes, which I highly recommend he found out all sorts of different things yeah. about the whales off of our coast, which is super cool. Like, as dissertations go, honestly, it is fascinating. It is a fascinating read. This is why I love what we do, because, like, as soon as you know those individuals and, like, the random numbers of, like, individual orcas, if you feel about them, then reading complicated DNA analysis about mm-hmm. them both becomes easier and more relevant and more interesting. Yeah. So, and then it's yeah. easy to tell other people about because you have the passion and the ability to yes transfer that DNA hard language into language that other people can understand. Indeed. Yay. Yeah. Oh, science. Love it, love it, love it. Our next question comes to us from Nyman Michelle. I think that's how we pronounce it. Uh, and they ask, how many orcas have been rehabilitated that were once in captivity? One. Hmm. The end. <laughs> we could just make this a really fast podcast. <laughs> no, one, the end. Um, this is also the most famous example. This is Keiko, otherwise known as Willie from Free Willy. So there is great debate, none of which we are going to tackle in our podcast ever, but definitely not today, about whether Keiko's rehabilitation and release out into the ocean is a success or not um the cold notes version of this there have been many books and documentaries written and produced about keiko's story his his entire story um is that you know keiko lived in captivity in a couple of different aquariums uh sort of in mexico and in canada and north america actually he moved all across north america Um, in each of the countries and uh, it was in captivity for I'm pretty sure about 20 to 25 years including the filming of Free Willy and then uh, after that movie came out in 1992 which oh my god I'm so old (laughs) (laughs) oh no great realization to have while recording a podcast Uh, After that film came out in 1992, there was huge public pressure and also probably the biggest fundraising that has ever happened Mm. um, in terms of trying to release uh, an orca into the ocean. And so in 1995, a few years afterwards, uh, Keiko was moved to a rehabilitation facility, uh, an on-land rehabilitation facility, an aquarium facility meant for rehabilitation in Oregon. And in 1999, so a few years after that, he was moved to a sea pen in Iceland. Mm-hmm. And As he is Icelandic. Exactly. Yes. yes. So that's important to yes. know like where he was from. Yes. Very important. Don't just release killer whales into the ocean. Yep. Like they did in the movie. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Bad plan. Um, and it took years Mm. so that was in 1999 um it took years and years and years of just millions of dollars of work and 
staff and research to get to the point where Keiko could leave his CPEN um, and be considered released, but he continued to come back and, and seek interaction from, from human companions, the, the people who had cared for him and, and worked on his release. And unfortunately, he did die of pneumonia in 2003 um, with his caretakers. So I'm going to leave that to our listeners to decide how they feel about that story and to do their own research into Keiko's story. But Keiko is, technically speaking, the only orca ever who lived in human care on land, so in an aquarium, um, like was taken physically out of the ocean mm-hmm. and then released back into the ocean. The one other successful rehabilitation story is that of Springer, a northern resident, but there are so many differences between mm-hmm. Springer's story and mm-hmm. Keiko's story that like it's not even it's apples and peas. Yeah. <laughs> um, most notably, Springer was very young and never left the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, so Springer was very sick, but and was rehabilitated in the ocean where she was found and brought into captivity with the goal of always rehabilitating yeah and the captivity was also very different as well like it was it was a sea pen like a yeah. makeshift sea pen set up where she was very close yeah to where and found. for the purpose of doing medical care yeah so totally 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 different great ending though yay springer being out there now she's got two maybe even three casts by now two casts two Unless super awesome i didn't hear anything which seems who knows incorrect. who last we heard yes <laughs> who knows who saw anybody in the northern resident community last year also so like but way to go springer and you know also very fair for us to talk about the fact that there there has been and continues to be a lot of discussion about the feasibility of some other current captive orcas morgan in spain quirky and lolita in the states uh, and whether they are good candidates for release because we do know for those three individuals in particular like where exactly they came from and where, who their families are morgan is a little iffy but quirky and lolita we do know who their families are um and there is ongoing discussion of possible sites for sanctuaries that might work whether they're just sea sanctuaries that are intended to like live out the rest of their life and kind of retirement or actually to be used as eventual release sanctuary sea pens kind of like what was set up for springer um there's ongoing discussions about setting these up in nova scotia and in friday harbor in washington but the feasibility of all of that and the the reality and like when or if truly if any of those will be a reality is not something that i can predict or that any of us can predict or or comment on so if you would like to learn more about any of those we've given you some some names and Things places to google mm-hmm. yeah go google <laughs> yep <laughs> okay our next question comes from orcas and tea mm, my favorite things um <laughs> Uh, what is the average pod size for resis and bigs? So for, we're going to talk about the, specifically the northern resident killer whales and the southern resident killer whales here in British Columbia, Pacific Northwest, and the bigs killer whales around here, um, as usual. Okay, it's a little bit complicated, um, like everything, but we are going to mainly answer based on their actual, their matriline size, because... 
for at least for the bigs and the northern residents, the matrilines are the best predictors of all being seen together, not tech, not their pod. Um, so some definitions here. Okay, so matriline is the eldest living reproductive female and her offspring. Yeah, and like and their offspring. Yeah, it's like it's a it's a mom and her kids and her grandkids and all that. Um, Except when we get to the bigs, in which case sometimes they split off because they don't want to be too big. But yeah, too, bigs don't want to be too big. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So for residents, residents are really strongly found in their like full matriline in most cases, like on average. Um, pods then are a closely aligned social grouping. They're likely more. They're likely genetically related, but more distantly related than a matriline. It's like your cousins over over yonder. And then there's acoustic clans, which is um, a bunch of or one or more pods that all speak in air quotes the same dialect, um, and so they are even more distantly genetically related than a pod. So to put this in perspective, in the northern resident community, there are three different clans, and each clan has multiple pods with then multiple matrilines. Whereas in the southern resident community, there's one clan. It is J clan. And so J-pod, K-pod, and L-pod, each with then their kind of breakdown matrilines, they are all speaking J-clan. Even if they are K-pod members, they are speaking, again, in air quotes, the same dialect, which is the J-clan dialect. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk some numbers. The, for the bigs, uh, this is all based on the 2019 ID catalog that we were talking about earlier. So the matriline size ranges from one to eight, and most are between two and five. Um, males and females, though, can leave their maternal group, and in the case of females, will start a new matriline. And this is basically just because they tend to travel in smaller groups, probably related to prey availability and things like that. Um, and they need to be stealthier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they got to be sneakier, so they can't be too big. So, yeah, so they they tend to be travel in smaller groups, so they are less likely also then to, like, group up with a bigger pod than their matriline happens, but less likely. Okay, so the two largest matrilines are T46Bs, and there's eight individuals, and then the T109As, where there's also eight individuals. And in both cases, their moms are still out there with their own other matrilines, uh, the T46s, where there's five individuals, and the T109s, where there's four individuals. So it's just a case of, like, I've got enough of my own family now, Mom. I don't want to hang out with my brother anymore, so I'm going to go over here. <laughs> and then, okay, and then, so the Northern Resident Killer Whales, this is also based on the 2019 ID catalog. Uh, the matriline sizes range a lot more in this group because they don't need to be as stealthy because they are eating fish. Uh, the mode, or the most common matriline size, is 7. The mean matriline size is 8.2. Uh, the largest matriline is the R5 matriline with 38 individuals, and it's made up of six generations, with uh, R5 being born back in 1949, and the newest member, R72, was born in 2019, which is wow. crazy. Uh, so there might be more since then. This is based on our 2019 catalog. And then the Southern residents, uh, so they there are some matrilines that are a lot smaller. So rather than going through each matriline, we're just going to talk about the pod sizes. So J pod has 24, indivi 24 individuals. And then the matrilines are range in size from four to eight members in K pod. There are 17 individuals and the matrilines range in size from one to six members. And then L pod has 34 individuals and the individual matrilines are made of one to 10 members. 
And those numbers are based on today, June 10th. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, like, those individuals in their own, like, they don't generally travel completely on their own. No, no, no. And that's why we're talking for the Southern residents about pods, because most, especially J and K pod, are almost always, you see the whole group. Mm -hmm. Um, L pod. Yeah, they're a little bit sweatier. L pod's weird. Yeah, L pod's weird. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the good example of this is Granny, um, Mm -hmm. of course, because she was the last one of her match line and she was with everybody all the time yeah being in charge going we're going over here and this is where we're going to eat the food and then everybody followed her so another our next question is from amanda and it is how many teeth do orca have so orcas have 10 to 13 pairs of interlocking teeth on each side of their upper and lower jaws for a total of 48 um and for a total sorry that was a total of about 48 because it, the range is actually 40 to 56 because cetacean teeth are dumb. <laughs> and <laughs> if you listen to our Beaked Whale episode, we'll know that as well. We ranted about it a little bit in Beaked Whales. And in a few, actually, we've ranted about cetacean teeth in a few other yeah, episodes too. Because unlike lots of other mammals, the number of teeth doesn't tell you anything about like what species it is because it varies so much individual yeah. to individual. Citation tooth is weird. Anyway, next question. Let's just move away from that. <laughs> Shysta asks us, how do you tell who is the leader of the pod? Very relevant to the question that Sarah was answering. Um, and this in residents in specific, residents and bigs, again, the ones we know the most about. The leader of the pod is the eldest female. And we know that because of everything that we've learned about the family dynamics of these animals. Um, We know that female killer whales, unlike almost any other mammal um, other than humans and like a couple of others, will go through menopause. So female killer whales will continue to live past their reproductive age, which is extremely rare and ties to at least is thought tied to their sort of cultural significance to their family because the eldest female is the one who, you know, like Lindsay was saying about granny, like told everybody where to go. It was the boss. Mm. This is where we fish. This is what we eat. This is how we talk. This is how we behave. Shape up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And even in the smaller matrilines, like the bigs where, you know, there's usually just two to five, animals traveling together it's mom knows best like the mother or in some cases with bigs the grandmother but in bigs it's rare to have three generations together um that eldest female is the one that's in charge and so you can you can see this if you spend a lot of time with the animals you can see it behaviorally you can you know i've i have seen matriarchs like clearly get between other members of their pod and kind of like steer them away from whatever direction they were going you know i saw granny fluke slap a couple of other members no idea what they were doing but it's totally like that like get in line like figure it out i'm in charge here um but this actually ties to another question we got from fame 51210 about do males stay with their pod for their whole life or do they go off and search for their own pod um and we know this because of those same family dynamics and who is in charge Male orcas, especially residents, but it seems to be true of most bigs as well, are incredible mama's boys. And they will stay with their mom for their entire 
entire lives unless something weird happens like onyx mother passed away genetic mother passed away but 99.9 percent of the time a male is going to stay with their mother who is either the leader of the pod or like next in line to be the leader of the pod and it's the females like what we were saying with the bigs especially like if a, if a female descendant starts to get enough of their own family and kind of like family clout almost um in bigs at least they may go off and, and form their own new matcher line or their own new group but it's going to be that eldest female who is in charge woman power way to go killer whales you've got it figured out <laughs> the males do leave their pod for mating uh, usually in like when they when their pod meets up with another pod um to like reduce inbreeding but in terms of like socializing and traveling and feeding and all that it's uh with their fam and i guess like visually it might be worth it to kind of like to help everybody who's listening to this visualize what we mean by like leaving your pod because when we even when we talk about if you've never seen killer whales in the ocean okay when we talk about staying with your pod they're not touching each other the whole time no so like traveling with your pod distance. is yeah acoustic distance which can be kilometers so when we when we say this is probably a good disclaimer because we take it for granted when we say members of a pod are traveling together it doesn't mean you're going to get all of them in a picture together it doesn't even mean necessarily that you with your human eyes on your human boat in those you know big swell waves will actually be able to see every member of the pod or the family so you know when different pods or different families get together for mating like what you're saying sarah like the males do leave because they mate with another member of the pod to avoid inbreeding but they're all still acoustically connected with each other it's even in mating it would be really really rare for a male to like acoustically leave their pod to go mate that would be like too far yeah yeah (laughs) that's why it's called whale soup when when we have super pods and they're all getting busy real close oh yeah so crazy okay our last question comes to us from chris wick six and they ask i'm a veterinarian in minnesota good job being a vet's hard. Um, in a few years, I'm looking to relocate to the Northwest Coast. I would like to use my veterinary degree to have a positive influence on a species, the orcas in particular. Do you know of any roles that veterinarians are currently playing in orca conservation? I know many roles. We know many roles. We know a few vets. <laughs> Not really that well, but we know a few. Um, rescue and rehabilitation efforts. Entanglement or disentanglement. Um, <laughs> research of many kinds. Um, academic research, uh, pathology, necropsy, probably more that we don't even know about. Um, So we'll put some links in the show notes, but to summarize here, in case anybody else is looking, um, I would suggest getting in touch with the various marine mammal response networks um, for volunteer or staff roles. Uh, In the US, that's through um, fisheries.noaa.gov. They have a marine mammal health and stranding response program. Um, In Canada, all of Canada, there's uh, the marine animal response. And then in BC in particular, um, we'll put a link for the BC specific one there as well. Um, And then in terms of um, NGOs, one that we know about is the Sea Doc Society on Orcas Island in the US. Uh, They conduct and sponsor research projects on all life in the Salish Sea, and they work directly with the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, So you can look them up at seadocsociety.org. And good luck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Loved, loved this question. Thank you so much. And thank you for wanting to do that with your life. That's incredible. 
And thank you to everybody, everybody who sent in questions for us to answer, everybody who's listening to our answers, uh, and anybody who wants to tell us what you thought about the questions and answers in this question and answer mailbag episode. Please visit our website, whale-tales.org, and you can find links to our various social media handles so you can drop us a line and let us know what you thought. You can also tweet at us directly. I am FHG07. Sarah is Sarah K. Given, no H. And Nicole is Nick F. Can, C-A-N-N. You can also head to our website to subscribe to our podcast, check out our merchandise, learn about supporting us and becoming a patron, and read over a thousand whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. That's whale-tales.org. Tales like the stories, not tales like the animal. And if you have seen a cetacean, we would love to add your story to our library. So please click the share link on our site, contact us on social media, whale tales org, or email us a voice memo and you might be featured in a future episode of the podcast. Thank you again for listening and for supporting us. We will be back one more time this month with a special guest all the way from Norway to dive deep into the lives of the orcas of the North Atlantic. So excited. And in the meantime, thank you so much, everybody, and have a whaley great day.